This morning's reading is from Acts chapter 2, verses 1 to 13. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt, and parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they ask one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, they've had too much wine. Well, if you've been in church over the last few weeks, you'll be aware that we're going through this teaching series in the mornings, looking at the person and work and ministry of the Holy Spirit. And we've been looking how the Spirit came uh, upon different people for particular purposes for a specific time. The Spirit of God was there at the start in creation. The Spirit of God came upon kings and prophets and priests in what we call the Old Testament. And the Spirit of God came upon those people for a particular reason, for a particular purpose, for a limited time. We've been looking how the Spirit anointed people, how the Spirit anointed Jesus at his baptism, how the Spirit enabled Jesus, even Jesus, to live the life that God the Father wanted him to live. And now we move on to the day of Pentecost, where Jesus promises on the day of ascension, 10 days ago, as he ascended into heaven, he promised his disciples that they would be clothed with power from on high. And he told them to go and wait in the city of Jerusalem. And 10 days have gone by since Ascension Day. 10 days when the disciples have been wondering and waiting what is going to happen next. Perhaps like me, you've been watching this week the commemorations of the 75th anniversary of D-Day. Perhaps you've been looking at the documentaries, hearing the stories, some incredibly powerful and moving stories of the people who, 75 years ago, on June the 6th, 1944, established that foothold in northern France with the aim of liberating France and then the rest of Europe from under the grip of Nazi Germany. It's been incredibly appropriate and moving, perhaps for the last time, that a number of veterans gathered in Normandy in this particular way. Incredible effort, 175,000 troops who were mobilized and strategically sent into northern France 75 years ago this week. 
Well, the reality is that today, we remember a movement that began that actually was more life-changing, was more earth-shattering, even than the events of June the 6th, 1944. It didn't happen through 175,000 people. It happened through a small group, no less than 12, but no more than 40, gathered in a room in Jerusalem that began a movement that changed the world. Without this movement, there would be no such things as hospitals or hospices, orphanages or universities. Without this movement, there would be no universities in Oxford, Cambridge, Aberdeen, St. Andrews, never mind Harvard or Yale. Our world is completely different because of this movement. Humility that was once considered a vice in the ancient world, a weakness, is now thought of to be a virtue across the world. This movement would change how we think about young people. It would change how we think about children. It would change how we think about the elderly. It would change how we think about slavery. It would change how we think about the dying and the dead. Even the name of the place where we remember the dead has been changed by this particular movement. The very word cemetery literally means sleeping place. And that sense that the people who are dead are just asleep, waiting for the resurrection of life, even from the grave that Jesus promised. This movement, without it, there would be no Handel's Messiah. There would be no St. Francis of Assisi. There would be no Mother Teresa, no Christian Aid, YMCA, Tear Fund or World Vision. There would be no Children's Society, Salvation Army, Samaritans. There would be no church picnic. <laughs> Without this particular movement that began 2,000 years ago. I think it's one of my favourite quotes. It's attributed to a woman called Margaret Mead who said this. Never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change the world. Indeed, it's the only thing that ever has. Never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change the world. Indeed, it's the only thing that ever has. And it's certainly true of the church. The church that came into being on that particular Pentecost day 2,000 years ago in Jerusalem. And within 30 years, that small group of people had changed the known world. Within 30 years, they'd reached Alexandria, the center of learning. They'd reached Antioch, the center of commerce. And they'd reached Rome, the center of politics and power. And the blue is the spread of the church in the first, the dark blue in the first 300 years. And then in the next five or 600 years, you see how fast that particular movement spread across the known world. Now, over 1,600 million people adhere to the Christian faith around the world. We are the world's largest faith community. 3,000 people became followers of Jesus on day one. Now it's over 1,600 million. And it's all made possible 
by the events that we remember and celebrate today. The coming of the Holy Spirit upon that small group of people in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. It's interesting what Luke, who wrote the Acts of the Apostles as well as his Gospel, includes in the account of the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 that Connor read for us a few moments ago. It's interesting what he doesn't include. We don't get any names of the people who were involved. There's no roll call of who is actually in the room as the Holy Spirit descends. We're not told names. We're not told numbers. As I say, it's no less than 12, but it's certainly no more than 40. We aren't even told exactly where this room is. You won't find a room celebrated as the place where the Holy Spirit came on the day of Pentecost. Actually, if you read the account, there's no reference to an upper room, which is often referenced by people when they talk about the Spirit coming on Pentecost of the disciples meeting in an upper room. It doesn't actually say that. It just says it's a room. It may have been the room that they'd rented and celebrated the Passover with Jesus the night before his crucifixion, 50 or so days beforehand, but it may not have been. It may have been in the temple courts because the people who hear what's going on are definitely worshippers, pilgrims, who are there in the temple courts in Jerusalem. Maybe it's somewhere in the temple, maybe it's in a private home, we're just not told. Neither, and this sounds really heretical, neither does Luke tell us that the disciples are praying. Luke doesn't say that. We imagine, of course, they were good spiritual Christians and they were praying for the Holy Spirit to come. It doesn't actually say that. All it says is that they were together in one place. That's the important bit. They're together in one place. Not where they're meeting, not how they're meeting, or even what they're doing while they're there. They'd seen Jesus appear to them between uh, that first Easter Sunday evening and uh, the day of, of ascension. They'd seen Jesus appear to them on several occasions, once to 500 of them. He'd, he'd, he'd appeared in that upper room with them and eaten fish on that first Easter Sunday night to show that he wasn't a ghost. He'd appeared to them by the Sea of Galilee and cooked them breakfast as he reinstated Simon Peter. And then on that strange day, ten days before this, they'd seen Jesus ascend into heaven and then being told to go back into Jerusalem and to wait until they were clothed with power from on high. But they didn't know when the Holy Spirit was going to come. They didn't know how the Holy Spirit was going to come. Maybe they were praying for the Holy Spirit to come, but Luke doesn't actually tell us that. He simply tells us that they're together in one place. 
Jesus has told them to wait until they're clothed with power from on high. But they don't know when it's going to happen. They don't know how it's going to happen. They don't know what the circumstances are going to be. And they're not even praying for it. They don't know what's about to happen because they hadn't read Acts chapter 2. Because it hadn't been written. They didn't know that Pentecost Sunday was going to be the day when the Holy Spirit came. Because it hadn't happened yet. And so they gathered together on Pentecost. One of three Jewish harvest festivals. A festival celebrated 50 days, Pentecost, 50 days after Passover when they'd celebrated what became the Last Supper, what we will remember in a few minutes with the bread and the wine. They gathered together, perhaps, to celebrate this harvest festival. And then on this ordinary day, when they weren't doing anything perhaps particularly spiritual, the Holy Spirit comes. And there are three physical signs, all supernatural in origin and character. A sound, a sight, and speech. Firstly, there's a sound, Luke tells us. A sound like the blowing of a violent wind. Not a wind, but a sound like the blowing of a violent wind. The wind in what we call the Old Testament was often associated with the ruach, the breath of God, Think back to Indiana Jones. So the breath of God, the wind, the spirit, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. So there was a sound. Then there was a sight. A sight. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them chemistry lesson unlike any other chemistry lesson. Tongues of fire appearing in the room and separating and resting upon them. The way it's described, they can't actually see the fire that's above their heads, but they can see the fire that's above everybody else's head. Maybe they sat there going, am I the only one who hasn't got the fire over me? We don't know. But they see this fire that separates and sits and rests upon each of them. Fire again like the wind associated in the Old Testament with holiness, with purity, with what are called theophanies when God appears in the Old Testament. So there's a sound, the sight, and then the speech. Spontaneously, they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. They began to speak spontaneously in different languages that they haven't been taught and that they haven't learned. These are human languages. Now, there is a gift of tongues that is angelolia, which are the tongues of angels. Paul speaks about that in 1 Corinthians. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but these are the tongues of men and women. These are human languages. 
and remember who it is who is speaking it. The people hearing it say, aren't these people Galileans? I.e., aren't these people from the north? And there's a lovely description in Acts chapter 4, verse 13, where they're described as unschooled ordinary men. The Greek is agramato idiotai. Ordinary idiots from the north. Well, how come if they're uneducated, ordinary idiots from the north, each of us can hear them praising God, declaring the wonders of God in our own language. And if you look at the list that Connor manfully read through of Parthians, Medes, Elamites, Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, Cretans and Arabs, it is quite a list. People from the Caspian Sea to Turkey, from North Africa to Rome, from the Mediterranean right across to the Middle East, and they all hear them praising God in their own language. There's a sight, there's a sound, and they hear speech. There are physical phenomena that we associate with the coming of the Holy Spirit. The same physical phenomena that have been observed again and again throughout the history of the church in these periodic times that we call revivals. When God sovereignly, spontaneously, supernaturally, unusually for us, but perfectly usually for him, operates in such a way that people see a physical manifestation of the Spirit of God present. Physical phenomena like a deep conviction of sin and the need for forgiveness. Physical phenomena like large numbers of people coming to faith. 3,000 on one day on the day of Pentecost. Again, in the history of the church, there have been those times of periodic revivals when large numbers of people supernaturally have come to faith in Christ. Large numbers, a deep conviction of sin, the need of forgiveness, a sense of awe and wonder, all are present here in Jerusalem as they have been throughout church history. A move of the Spirit which cannot be manipulated or predicted, learned or fully understood. Whether it's here in Jerusalem, whether it's in the Welsh valleys in the last century, whether it's in Moravia, or whether it be, as is being commemorated this weekend, the 70th anniversary of the Hebridean revival. And Paul, one of our clergy team, is there this weekend gathering with other Christians not just to commemorate, not just to remember, but also hopefully to experience something of what it was that happened in the Hebrides 70 years ago. And all those physical phenomena occurred in the Hebrides. Perhaps like me, you've heard of the stories, the accounts of, for example, a bus that was going along a road and the Spirit of God came upon the bus in the Hebrides. 
The driver of the bus pulled the bus over to the side of the road. The entire contents of the bus got off the bus and fell face down in the heather because they were so overcome with the presence of God. So overcome with the holiness of God. So overcome with their need for forgiveness. Another story of two men who were out in a boat who were passing by the Hebrides. They weren't even on the Hebrides. They were passing by the Hebrides and they were so overcome with a conviction of sin that they had to put into a harbour and find some people who would pray with them and pray for them. Physical phenomena that occur when the Holy Spirit moves in an unusual way. On the day of Pentecost, in the Hebrides, in the Welsh Valleys, in Moravia. Jack Deere uh, is a, an American Presbyterian who came from a very, very conservative background. The particular church background that he came from was of a firm conviction that the things that I've just mentioned do not happen today. That the things that I've just talked about, they were for the early church, but they are not for today's church. And then, because God's like that, Jack Deere had a particular experience of the Holy Spirit, where he realized that his theology of the Holy Spirit was restricted. Where his theology and his belief about the Holy Spirit was narrow, where his theology and belief and practice about the Holy Spirit was limited. And he was overwhelmed with the sense of God's love and God's power. And so being a good Presbyterian minister, he started to do some research. And in particular, he did research into the preaching of John Knox, the man, above all, who brought the Reformation to Scotland. And to his surprise, he discovered that something very, very strange had happened in the historical accounts of the Reformation. You see, if you look at the accounts of Wesley preaching or Whitfield preaching, if you look at the accounts of Simon Peter preaching on the day of Pentecost, or if you read the accounts of Duncan Campbell preaching in the Hebridean Revival, you will see these references to physical phenomena that occur when the Spirit came upon people. But Jack Deere was struck that when he read the accounts of the preaching of John Knox, well, there weren't any references to physical phenomena. And then as he dug deeper into the accounts, he discovered something slightly more sinister. Actually, all the same things had happened when John Knox preached. People had shook as the Holy Spirit came upon them as John Knox preached. People were convicted of sin and fell to their knees in the street as John Knox preached. Large numbers of people were converted as the Holy Spirit moved across the streets of Scotland as John Knox preached. But then something happened in the 19th century. As a consequence of the Scottish Enlightenment, those in authority within the church in Scotland decided that that wasn't proper for Scottish Christians. 
That wasn't right for Scottish Christians. Good, nice, proper, religious Scottish people wouldn't shake when the Holy Spirit came upon them. Good, nice, proper, religious Scottish people wouldn't need to be convicted of sin because they belong to God's nation. And so those accounts, those references, they were expunged. They were redacted. They were taken out of the eyewitness accounts of what happened when John Knox preached. And maybe now, 200 years later, what we're reaping is the consequence of a church in Scotland across denominations that, in the words of Paul, has a form of godliness but denies its power. Well, if we're honest, it's very easy on a day like today, on Pentecost Sunday, where we sing about the Holy Spirit, and we talk about the Holy Spirit, but we don't actually expect the Holy Spirit to come and be present in the same way. I've often reflected that it's a bit like when Scotland or England go to a football or rugby World Cup. Special songs are written. There's lots of hope and anticipation but we all know it's going to end in despair one way or the other. And if we're honest, lots of people can approach Pentecost Sunday in exactly the same way. We sing songs about the Holy Spirit. We pray prayers about the Holy Spirit. We hear passages and talks about the Holy Spirit, but we don't actually expect the Holy Spirit to come and to meet with us and to fill us, and to change us. But the reality is that the church in Scotland is in more need now than perhaps we have ever been of a move of the Holy Spirit. With only 5% of the population of Scotland found in any church on any given Sunday. Whereas a society we're increasingly anxious Increasingly stressed, increasingly lonely, increasingly fractious and fractured, increasingly broken and suspicious, increasingly angry. The only thing that can change our society is a sovereign move of the Holy Spirit. The only thing that can change society is if people's lives, if people's hearts, if people's minds, if people's spirits, if people's souls, if my life is changed by the Holy Spirit. That's the only thing that changed the church in Jerusalem, and it's the only thing that's going to change the church in Scotland. So on this Pentecost Sunday, you will be glad to hear I'm not going to say much more. But I felt it was right on this Sunday of all Sundays that we simply stop and wait and pray. And we pray one of the ancient prayers of the church, which is, come Holy Spirit. And it is an ancient prayer. It's not something that H.T.B. or Nicky Gumbel invented, or even Sandy Miller before him. 
but it's an ancient prayer of the church where we invite God's Spirit to come, that same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, that same Spirit that came upon those early believers in Jerusalem on that day of Pentecost. We want to pray for that same Spirit to come now upon us.